0: Do not communicate with the dead, C.W. writes, for it is written in Deuteronomy 18:10 through 12, there shall not be found among you anyone that useth divination or an observer of times or an enchanter or a witch or a charmer or a consultant of familiar spirits or a wizard or a necromancer. It's no surprise that a letter to the editor in an electronics hobby magazine would illuminate the tension of the heart of both the occult and the inventive spirit. The occult understood to be a set of spiritual and magical practices that are often at odds with normative religious customs, rarely aligns with the mainstream American ideal of the individual as a frontiersman exploring the limits of what is possible in an effort to build and expand outward into the antipode. Technology is also often at odds with religious values as well because, similarly, it places too much power in the hands of the human being, leaving little room for God. But unlike the occult, technological innovation more readily can be understood as, a, as being a gift from God, a measure of salvation and the perfection of the soul. When will we combine technology with the spiritual? Even when outside of accepted religious practice, the edges begin to blur." It becomes a realm not accepted by either religious traditionalists or scientists. The hobbyist with a DIY engine in their heart has always propelled these kinds of activities forward. ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Rory, and I'm joined today by my esteemed fellows, Jay and Nick. Hello. Hi. On this show, we're going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. Strange Frequencies is Peter Biebergall's personal journey into connecting the occult with technology. As he journeys from golems to spirit boxes, he tries for himself to experience these supernatural phenomena that have been talked about through the ages. Each chapter working with different technology and different people, all with the singular goal of trying to understand the lines that are growing more blurred as the years go on. In Chapter 1, The Golem of Boston, Peter goes over everything from The Legend of the Golem by I.L. Paratez to Frankenstein to even the golem creature listed in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which I actually used to have a copy of. It was my first ever D&D book. Nerd. Yeah, damn right. Moving on to Chapter 2, Bibergall decides to experience more in the world of automatons. In the uncanny valley of the dolls, he talks to Nico, a horologist who has spent her life repairing old automata, even going into different shops with her to gather the materials to create his own creep, one-of-a-kind soul-bearing machine. Learning nothing from iRobot, Chucky, and the many other horror movies about dolls, he attempts to bridge the gap between life and the supernatural. In Rough Magic, we move on to Stage Magic in Theater. This is a dense chapter full of historical debunking of mediums and sleight-of-hand techniques used by those mediums and stage magicians alike. Exploring the world of Ferdinando Bushima, an engineer, magician, occultist, and technologist, he doesn't separate from the spiritual and the cult, but rather notes how technology is used within the performance to enhance and open the mind of what might be the supernatural. In chapter four, we move on to photography. Working with Shannon Taggart, a well-known photographer who has been praised for her work depicting different communities of spiritualism. Sitting with Shannon and 20 or so other people, they photograph Uh, a seance he explores their use of hypnotism from psychologists to mediums but ultimately leaving the lily dale disappointed by his experiences chapter five explores audio recordings of ghosts and other supernatural beings even testing it for himself with an old school tape recorder in a light fantastic round or chapter six Mr. Biebergall talks with Ronnie Thomas, director and producer of the film series, The Midnight Archive. In this chapter, he explores a more meditative approach. Sitting with Ronnie, they talk about things such as out-of-body experiences and the use of music and technology to help enter the meditative mindset, to achieve these kind of experiences as well as other transhumanist experiences. While skeptical of the legitimacy of it and the concern that it is merely a hacking technique to bypass the need to actually achieve some form of enlightenment, he moves on. Chapter 7, the final chapter, Fear and Soldering, he creates a spirit box, or spirit radio, using an old Radio Shack AM FM radio he found on eBay. He tests the spirit box both for himself and studying other spirit box users online, listening to a video while not reading the subtitles. He tries to make out what one party is claiming is set. Once he reads through the subtitles, his ears inevitably shift to hear what the YouTubers were saying it was heard through a phenomenon called pareidolia or the tendency to give greater meaning to a visual or audio stimulus throughout the book. Bibergall sets out to achieve some form of mystical connection between technology and spiritualism. What he finds isn't magic so much as an instruction book of how to utilize different technology to, enha- to enhance the greater search. No, he wasn't able to create a golem or a lifelike automata, but he did get to experience a medium lead a seance, create and listen to a spirit box, and so much more. All to be left with even more questions. Can we humans, by the use of technology, tap into the greater consciousness of the world? Does the supernatural exist? And is technology the way that we will get there, or is it just a tool to distract us from what games the non-people are playing? Let's get into it. Thank you, Mister Keel. Yeah, you're welcome. I figure, you know, with our uh, our um, our mascot being a moth person, that uh, that you know, the idea of John Keelanisms yeah. or whatever is going to be prevalent here.
1: Notice us, Papa Keel. <laughs>
2: He's... He did.
0: He dead.
1: I can still dream. We're talking about spirit boxes today. Maybe I want to be seduced through spirit box.
0: Well, that can be done soon enough. <laughs>
2: Why the fuck will you guys use spirit boxes, but you won't let me use an Ouija board? I'm,
0: you know, honestly, I'm coming more to terms with the Ouija
1: board. Uh, honestly, you. I, my hatred of the Ouija board is experiential in nature. And, uh, unyielding. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so how are you guys doing?
0: I'm recovering. You're recovering? Yeah. I had surgery like six, five, five days ago, four days ago. How, how uh, Thursday.
2: Last Thursday. This It is yeah. currently a Tuesday that we're recording yeah, on.
0: Yeah. I mean, clearly you don't know when yeah, it correct. happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Five days ago. Yeah. What about you, Jay? I'm, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> I think. Yeah, it basically. So what did, I mean, overall, I guess to get the conversation going, sorry. Uh,
2: overall, what was,
0: uh, I forgot, it's my responsibility to be the host today. Yeah,
2: you're, are you okay?
0: I mean, I'm recovering from surgery that I had five this? days ago. I'm gonna. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you're the love of my life.
0: I, I, th- thank you. <laughs> anyway, um, so, you know, before we dive into the specific discussion questions, what are your overall thoughts? Like, what do you think of Peter uh, Biebergall's journey? I I think for me, uh, I
1: don't know, my impression of this book came in two phases for me, because the first one was when I first finished reading and I I take pretty copious notes uh, as my co-hosts have made fun of me for repeatedly. It's true, though. You do. Uh, But. And and I t- I went and it wasn't until I was going over my notes and then reading another book that I'm go- we're working through right now, uh, as well as listening to a couple podcasts that Mister Biebergall appeared on, that I I began to get kind of a better appreciation for the book. Because when I first finished it, I put it down. and I thought, all right, well that was several hours of my life, and I have no idea if I'm richer for it. Um, and what I mean yeah. by that is, I think as a writer. Uh, there's, if I had really only one critique to make about Biebergal, it's that he did not approach uh, his thesis as clearly as I would have hoped he would. And there were certain terms he used where. Upon thinking back on it, it, it's very much things like the occult imagination that he talks about and uh, some of the internal processes, the internal landscape that he talks about in this book. There are concepts that he has talked about in other work that he's done. And so because we came into this having really no background on on his work before, this is the first book of his that
0: I've ever read. The, well, he's only got, what, three books, because he's got this one, Season of the Witch, and then I think some uh, another he, unrelated He, he book.
1: has one about growing up uh, kind of as part of the psychedelic generation, uh, which I, I do want to read. And I do want to read Season of the Witch. It's about how the occult uh, interfaces with rock and roll, which is I mean, fucking radical.
2: David Bowie summoned the devil into his pool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Facts. And and then uh, and then was fucking flipped out by it.
1: But I, And I will say, I think... Well, I don't – I don't know. I didn't see – I don't see a lot of myself in Peter, so that's probably why – our brains just work very differently, which is probably why I had some trouble with this book. But upon hearing him talk about it and go over his thoughts and upon kind of finding out more about what his – I guess his academic ideas are, his through line between his works, I have a bit better appreciation for what he was going for here. Uh, I just, I, like I said, I wish he'd done more to define the terms like the occult imagination, and I wish he had uh, maybe just explained how explained that aspect a little better because I was lost for a long time. No,
0: I I, I agree uh, because I had the same complaint. Uh, really, what my one of my biggest complaints was. That I didn't understand what his thesis statement was throughout the book because through it going chapter to chapter, it didn't feel like we were building to any one thing. We were just experimenting and trying, but not coming to any like grander conclusion or really any kind of conclusion. And that and that bothered me. That bothered me a little bit.
1: Well, yeah, because it, it feels like. I mean, here's the thing: is I think part of that split comes around from expectations about the book. Because just reading the jacket, looking at the front, I. Went into this book with this thought of this is a guy he's going to kind of try to really make a statement about what is our relationship between technology and the occult. And and he does do that in the sense that he talks about how frequently well basically how through all of human history uh, we have used devices or tools as almost a symbolic representation of the occult as a way to be able to contextualize the ineffable. Uh, and it goes back to, say, any sort of religious talismans. That'd be an example of that. Mind you, in antiquity all the way up to modern day. Uh, and I think his argument could probably be made that – probably said to be that the more modern tools we see ghost hunters using, uh, you're talking about your your EVP machines, your spirit boxes. All those are is another symbol that we can use to interpret the ineffable. It is a, it is a means of communication between us. And whatever that other force is, and I think to Peter Biebergal, um, it the question of what that force is, or if it's true or not, if it's real or not, is completely inconsequential. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's real or not because it's real in this sort of internal uh mindscape that we all have, which is what he calls the occult imagination.
0: Right. It was would, I I, would, uh, I compared it to kind of like the the Sherlock thing. What do you call the mind, it? mind palace? I'm going mind to palace. my mind yeah. palace. Like the way when I first read about it or whatever, that's like the first thing my brain locked you, on to. See, I, I think I
1: oh, And that's I mean, I understand that I think pr- probably from my. So this is just me p- putting some pieces together. What I think he means by the occult imagination is that. Over and over again in this book, we see uh, situations where he's talking about kind of the performative nature of magic. Uh, You know, you have the grand wizard up there. He's burning incense. He's shaking bones. He's doing whatever he's doing. But then relating that to theater, which I come from a theater family. So, of course, I I, I latched onto that like a motherfucker. uh, And how the whole idea of really there is a sort of unreality created in the theater. And it's done via the interplay between. The actors were creating this false reality, and the audience who is at that moment turning off their brain and saying – or turning off part of their brain that says this isn't real. They're accepting that they're in this liminal space where reality becomes flexible, and that I think is what in his mind the occult imagination is. It's that place where you have accepted –
0: The things that you can't say are true or not. It's 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 more that moment when you have uh when you have completely suspended disbelief.
1: Yeah, uh, it's it's the moment when you're intuiting from uh, a truth from the world around you instead of perceiving it and compartmentalizing it like we do every day.
0: That's so funny. Like I was just thinking about that. Like as you were explaining it, I was like, okay, I see it. Like I see that point. Like that idea, that framework, or that mindset, Mm -hmm. that specific state of being. Like I completely get that. Because I've been there, you know, we've all been yeah. there. We've all been to theater shows where we get so into it that we lose ourselves or even a concert you could do, you you know, that happens like that probably has happened to me in more concerts than anything else, you know, because it's so, it's so surreal. Well, the it, whole experience. It's and,
2: what happens to us when we're LARPing.
0: Right. And yeah, Exactly. Exactly. That I, because yeah no exactly because I I literally can walk into a room and snap my fingers and I'm a different person right you know? it,
1: it's it it is the ability to entertain the impossible and which is why I, I said I don't think to Mr Biebergal, it matters if if someone's actually hearing ghosts on the other side of that spirit radio or not what matters is that they are they believe they could they have entered into that liminal space and that space means something to us as a species because it's something we all do regardless of culture and i think that's uh, again i'm i don't want to put words in his mouth but my understanding is his real po- thru- the thrust of his point here was trying to get at what that is and how do we get use technology to get there uh and like i was saying earlier it's something we've always done we we've always had religious talismans and things like it. Which is actually one of my favorite things he talks about in the book is some ancient Greek temples would have this mechanism in place on the door to so the doors, as you approach them, they'd trigger the mechanism, the doors would swing open before you. And you know, there was probably you know chanting going, there's candles. And it just made me think about the performative nature of even religion, even mainstream religion, especially. I mean, like when we were talking about Catholicism on last episode, how much performance is in Catholicism and the interplay between that performance and the actual occult occult ideas that it's supposed to represent. It's all allegorical. It's all symbolic of this idea of wanting to understand, of trying to quest for it. I'm sorry. I I have not let let Jay talk once. And so I'm going to let that happen now.
2: Hello. Um, so I had a, I had a similar journey with the book where it's like, I beg you, Peter Biebergal, just tell me what your thesis statement is. And he's like, I want to build a fucking golem. And it's like, that's not a thesis statement, Peter. And he's like, hey, do you want to hear the story about the woman who was photographed vaginally birthing a mound of ectoplasm? <laughs> I'm like, no, Peter, I don't want to hear about that. I want to hear your fucking through line. And he's like, welp guess what? (laughs) And, but I, I, I enjoyed the book and, uh, I agree with Nick's interpretation of the idea of the purpose of the occult imagination. And I I think that is probably what Peter Bieber was getting at throughout this entire book. I would have preferred to hear it from him within the book, um, instead of him, just, just, Saying terms like a cult imagination, and it's and him just being like, this is a roller coaster. Keep the fuck up. So, and,
1: did, I I just want to make make sure. Like, did you guys come across any point in the book where he actually defines it?
2: Not that no, I can recall. I mean, I,
1: I've been looking. I mean, granted, I haven't done a reread, but I've just been picking and choosing pages through it all day, and I've yet to find it. Uh So, if he, you do, Mister Biebergal, if you do, did define it in the book, we apologize, but very clearly we missed it.
2: But um my my favorite part of the book was definitely was definitely the first few chapters when he was focusing so hard on the idea of the golem and the idea of the automaton just because uh that that is an idea that is kind of it, it's rooted in some very interesting phenomenon that is unique to humanity and unique to human religion uh we have Besides pareidolia, there are a couple of there are a couple of things that kind of enable humans to do things like that, like interpret certain things as being signs from God or as signs of a haunting. Besides pareidolia, we also have something called the agency detection device, which is basically the. And it's not an actual device. This is a term in evolutionary psychology and scientific uh, scientific religious studies that refers to the weird process in our brain that allows us to determine if something is moving with conscious intent or if it's moving without conscious intent. It's the thing that helps us determine between a spider and a leaf across the ground is our ability to pick out if something is moving of its own accord not. And I don't understand the full machinations into what goes into our ability to do that. I'm not sure anyone actually fully understands what allows us to do that. The other thing is the theory of mind device, which is uh, linked to that agency detection device. And that is essentially if it has agency, it has a mind. If it has intent, it has motive. And that, combined with pareidolia, which is essentially, uh, as Rory defined, is basically our ability to take seemingly random scraps of information and turn it into a larger pattern. All of that is what combines into us being able to have a creative imagination, see faces in clouds, and then turn those faces into gods.
1: (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I mean, this is going to be a little bit down the down the alleyway here but uh you're bringing up that the whole idea of being able to tell something that's moving with conscious intent versus not and i can't stop but think about um my fiance and i we got a puppy recently yes Mm. about recently like six months ago
0: october yeah
1: Yeah. yeah. uh and he's wonderful Uh, his name is teddy he's a little australian shepherd pup demon i love him. uh but best boy when we walk him you know he's fine with the world as it is, unless something is moving that shouldn't be. And what I mean by that is, like, if it's a windy day and there's a trash can rolling around, he stops. He gets. He growls at it. He barks at it. He, I think
0: if it's moving, he thinks it's alive. Yeah. Well, trash cans don't move. Yeah. Yeah. And no. then he sees a trash can move. It, and he's, what the fuck? Exactly. Um, I
2: don't <laughs> think agency detection device is unique to us, but it is far from ubiquitous. We are one of a small handful of creatures that have. A de- a fully defined, fully like refined I, agency detection device. I do
1: have to say, as far as we know, because you know, I mean, it's a big galaxy. There could be a whole <laughs> turn. You know, it could turn out that like every all the aliens have that, and you know we we don't want to be that guy who's blowing up on Twitter talking about their new kicks, and it turns out everyone has them.
2: I meant on this planet. I imagine most sentient species throughout the galaxies have an agency detection device. God,
1: can you imagine if there was one that didn't? <laughs> Like, especially if they were an advanced one, like where they had vehicles that gave them some form of locomotion, it almost would invite this mode of thinking where, oh, God, it would actually probably invite some sort of megalomania because, look, I made this machine that moves. I have made life.
0: Well, and that, see, that right there is like, I feel like that is the question that Peter Bibergall was chasing throughout the whole book was, is what I'm doing with this automata, even though what, how we perceive life as it is, is this creating life? Or how can I, how can I make this actually creating life? Which, ironically, um, I feel like, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but I feel like he almost smashed his hopes of any of this in the first chapter.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that. I, I, I And I, I also want to get to the automaton later because I need to talk about the silver swan. I went down a deep rabbit hole regarding that particular robot.
2: I'm looking forward to it. And I just and the other thing is just the, the chapters of the golem is what had the most to do with my particular degree, because, uh, well, it. There's one particular moment in the book, and I talked about this with you guys a little bit, where that one rabbi in Boston, um, I believe it was the one in Boston, was telling him that it's like the golem is something that lives inside of you. You should picture yourself as the golem and attempt to summon its strength from deep within your mind palace. And you should you should picture yourself as the golem, and that will able that will enable you to carry the golem's strength and the golem's resolve and its ability to defend our community. And that struck me as sounding very, uh, very similar to uh, some of the traditions in tantric Buddhism in particular, uh, where one of the core practices of tantric Buddhism, which is a mystical form of Buddhism. Which is crazy because Buddhism is already basically straight mysticism. And then there's a mystic tradition on top of that where essentially you select gods uh, that you feel have the most to... The most relation to you, the gods that you can draw the most power and inspiration from, and you begin picturing yourself sometimes just piece by piece, like the rabbi was advising him in the in the story about picturing himself as the golem, as is just like, I am Green Tara, I am whoever, and pulling that in, and... Additionally, this is this is just something else that I thought you guys would find fascinating. Um, in the ancient Egyptian temples, the gods you've you've probably seen this in movies and in old photos of dig sites of those uh, those big life size statues of the gods that would stand around in the temples. One of the main duties of ancient Egyptian priests and their temple virgins and all of that shit was to take care of those statues, as in they were bathed, dressed, got their makeup done, and fed the statues of the gods, because in the ancient Egyptian religion, there was a very strong belief that it's like if you create an accurate image of the god, that essentially becomes the god's vacation house the god can step into that statue and inhabit it at any time and that is oh, how that's god so cool yeah that's how the gods watched their ancient people is if you had a statue of anubis in your house anubis was in that statue if you had a statue in isis's temple that was isis
0: that's cool and that's cool as fuck i i knew i rem- i knew back from when i took like or I had like sections on Egypt whatever I remember uh I remember learning about that but it is definitely one of those things that didn't stick with me because uh it, I or at least I didn't learn it that specifically but because that's really cool it makes
1: me real concerned about all the statues of demons and monsters I got in this house but
2: uh that's Egyptian <laughs> gods you don't they don't the rest of the shit in the world can't necessarily do that the ancient Egyptian pantheon Absolutely can waltz into this house whenever they want because I have I have shit with them on it stored in various places. Well,
1: that's as far as we know. Could be. Yeah. I mean, all right. Anyway, let's uh, <laughs> before we get down
0: to the weeds. Yeah, well, we're way into the weeds. Hooray! Uh, let's let's come out of the weeds, okay? And uh, let me let me tell you. So a good thing. Uh that first bit that we just went through that was my first discussion question. Yay, I know I didn't yeah. say that but I tricked you and we did it anyway.
2: Hooray, progress. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: uh so the second uh, the our second discussion question, I specifically want to dive into one section a little bit deeper. And it's a little bit deeper than what we just did, but that's okay. In chapter one, he spends some time searching for a rabbi that will talk to him, uh, that will talk to him about golems, but specifically, or, or which it turns out is it's a real struggle. Uh, he finally finds one in Israel that will talk to him, a rabbi by the name of, I'm gonna but- butcher this, but his name is Yal Rees.
1: Yeah, I, I can't help you pronounce that.
0: Yeah, well, what he learns is that once he learns is that the I'm going to butcher this too. the Sefer Yetzira, which is said to be the guidebook for creation, was only used not in magical practice, but religious practice to create an actual living being that would protect the Jewish people from danger. So actually creating a golem and it was through this text or this method, the guidebook, whatever, the Zephyr Yetzara. Now, knowing how far the legend, of the golem has come because it has come so far from that, right? Do we think that maybe the reason why we haven't seen a cre- the creation of an actual modern day golem, uh, is, uh, do we think that maybe th- this is why, because we don't use like the Zephyr Yetzara as a base? Uh, and we're not Jewish, or has the golem itself evolved beyond the Jewish text of the uh, the Sefer Zara and huma- and has humanity just forgotten how it works?
1: I mean, so my read on that, I mean, for one, one thing I do want to say, I did love the the fact that to make a golem, you have to speak every possible combination of the name of god which is what the sefer Yazar is y- yes which is so yeah. and that uh you know at minimum takes 7 hours some forms take 32 hours of prolonged chanting and concentration yep. and i mean to me that's like that's like the real juicy magic you know when you got yeah, the one yeah. guy sweaty in the room who's been chanting and is in a fever state for 25 hours straight but that beyond that i guess I took more from the conversation regarding the whole idea of the golem is in the self. And, and I think that's probably just because it's more in line with a lot more Western esoteric thought uh, in that it is most of esotericism, most of most of Western esoteric thought, a lot of magical practices, especially we see in Western traditions. They're about inward transformation of the self. And this whole idea of making a person to protect the Jewish people, I I did read that allegorically for the idea, in the idea of I am making myself into this protector. I am taking on this, the burden of the golem, and in doing so, reshaping my soul and my consciousness towards that end.
0: Okay. Like, I get that. And I, you know, that's cool. I, I, you know, I believe in that, that ideology, but I want to challenge it just, please. uh, Kind of, uh, kind of a little bit because we know, historically speaking, that. They're not necessarily talking about somebody just saying to themselves. They're talking about the creation of a golem. And like I said, the modern i you know idea of a golem isn't building within your inner self anymore. So how does that play into the idea of uh, did it just evolve beyond what we thought, or did it has it evolved beyond that that it's no longer? Creating a physical, something physical and separate as a, you know, uh, uh, to, to carry the divine light, whatever, whatever it might be. And now we can just do that within ourself. Or is it just, I don't know, or is it like two separate? Is it two completely separate things at this point? Because I, I guess the reason that I say is because it's like you said you take from it the most out of that chapter or out of that part of the book. The most you take is the part of the Western or you know, the inner p or inner self and all that. And that's like fucking enlightened like building to enlightenment one oh one kind, you know, like that's the same path that I personally like go like believe in. Like that's what I personally took out the most of too. But I guess my struggle is there are so many people out there that believe in the actual clay golem that believe in the actual like we, I can't just say, well, that doesn't exist because I can't rationalize it. So I'm going to
1: make one quick point. I'm going to let Jay speak. Um, but so I think obviously for me personally, I want there to be a walking clay golem. That'd be fucking awesome. Right. But um, <laughs> and I, it's not that I disbelieve. It. I mean, is it is it difficult to grasp? Yeah, I mean, sure as shit, it is. I trust me. If it was easy to make uh, inanimate figures walk around, I would have had so many action figures run around my room as a kid. <laughs> it would have been great. And I'm not saying that no one ever did it because I, I wasn't there for all the recorded human history. I and I'm not a master of the esoteric and mystic arts, but I. Yeah. I, me, I mean, me neither. I, I, I can't means. say that I don't have. I don't have enough information or expertise to make a distinction on that, which th- I'm hoping Jay will. But I will say that, again, I think is regard kind of in the spirit of Mr. Bieber. I'll put on my Bieber hat. hat. Yeah. Uh, I think it doesn't really matter which it is. And I think especially I don't think it matters if the clay golem ever walked. What matters is that those thousands and thousands of people have engaged with the unreal or the the occult imagination in a way that they absolutely believe it could. It, it's that ability to kind of bridge the connect between over our logic and circumvent all of these rational skepticisms we've programmed into ourselves, especially here in America. Um And I, I don't know, but I don't think it particularly matters.
2: So I have a lot of I have a lot of thoughts coming from a lot of different angles about that question. And I'm going to try to connect them with a couple of common threads. So I to to address one of the points that Rory brought up, I don't think any of us in this room could ever create a golem because as rory said we are not jewish in particular we are not jewish rabbis of great learning and great mystical prowess so we can chant we can chant the names of god all we fucking like all it, it it's not it's not going to happen for us it's not those words that magic is is not for
1: us well i mean it, it, it theoretically because we're not of that culture it wouldn't i mean to use a term that you the biebergall uses in the book it wouldn't complete the circuit yes we we wouldn't you know we wouldn't have that kind of cultural background with which we could suspend ourselves into that liminal state
2: and the second point and this is possibly my my second theory on why we don't quote-unquote, see golems anymore. There was one rabbi in the book who said something like, we used to make golems when we had need of them. We don't have need of them now, which initially struck me as odd because it's like, in some ways, the Jewish population of Earth is under more threat than ever. But also, the threats that are currently facing jewish people in the world can't really be solved by a big clay hulking monster that comes exploding out of the rabbi's uh, basement to start throwing punches it's an it's entirely possible that the reason god no longer allows even his chosen people to create a golem is because the golem's not going to solve the problems you think it's going to as a matter of fact According to that, the according to Biebergal's research, the last time someone made a golem, it actually created more problems and the rabbi had to shut it down eventually because it was just murdering people. I mean,
1: that, doesn't right. that seem to happen a lot in a lot of the golem tales, especially right at the end when they shut the golem down? Doesn't it usually fall to pieces on top of its creator and kill the creator? Yeah. <laughs> I mean,
2: I and there and I would like to preface this with like my primary education, my primary expertise is in is in christian cultural denominations and mystical traditions there within but based on the understanding that i have of that i have of judaism is that is very much in line with how the jewish interpretation of god operates is he yeah of it's of yeah You made that thing. I feel like I told you that you shouldn't, but you made it. Okay, I'm not interfering anymore. It's going to do what it's going to do, and hopefully you can solve the problem because I'm not going to.
0: There's something to be said about that the story is ending that way and then thinking about um, like how... We were trying to think about like, uh, you know, the differences between like in a, you know, inner golem versus outer golem. If the idea that we couldn't create a golem, you know, because we're not Jewish, likely we couldn't reach the state of being that would let us be a golem, right? Well, what if that is the, you know, what if these stories, you know, as we, we read them as they are separate entities, but they're meant to show that they're the same? that the the person you know who summoned the golem who was controlling the golem was actually the golem the whole time so when it when it was all said and done it was over it was their life that was that was ended with it because they were no longer needed that
2: is that is entirely theor- that that is entirely possible and that does that does track with um and and again I preface this with this is not my area of expertise but from my understanding that does seem to link with uh Jewish ideas of the inevitability and natural state of suffering and the idea of the constant necessity of sacrifice
1: you know all right so one thing i sorry one thing i did want to point out just not to jump back too much but you know the topic of we won't make a golem because we're not jewish i want to make something clear i don't believe mysticism has i don't know like uh, secular not, not uh, religious paywalls if yeah. you know i mean i don't believe that there's any sort of genetic. like you need to be of this ethnic group or you need to be of this religion to do magic mm-hmm. what i do but what, what i mean by that though is that we have this name of god the sephir yet which again we're all butchering it oh. i actually heard someone pronounce it right and i i just i couldn't get it to work right on my tongue but we have that name, and they have to chant these letters. And all of the Golem is incorporating the Hebrew alphabet. You know, they put the mark of life on its forehead. They have to remove the word of God from it in order to make it crumble. I the point I'm trying to make, though, is that without, I guess, the background of the Jewish faith, without the acceptance of that uh, of basically the Jewish uh, cosmology into my own occult imagination, those words are just words. It, it, they don't get in my opinion and again this is just my opinion they don't gain that power until you complete the circuit between believer and belief and before because it's almost like it, per, it perpetuates itself you need to believe that the golem is possible for the golem to be created and the golem can only be created because you believe it's possible
2: yes exactly and that's that's kind of what I was, was driving at is just the idea of those words won't work for us just because we do not have the sort of emotional connect that is needed in order for, like you said, to complete the circuit. Like the, those, like the name of the names of God in the Jewish tradition, it, it mean nothing to me. They're they're just words on the they're just words on my tongue because I was not raised uh i was- I was not raised with any emotional connection that makes me look at that word and know that is that is my God, the God who created me and gave me life
0: <laughs> no and i i agree i I also agree that i don't think I don't believe that magic has like a you know a paywall like you said, but I believe that certain magic can only be cast by those that designed it sure oh and I think
1: that any time.
0: I mean, any quote-unquote
1: magical ritual you're looking at there, it's always going to be colored by the culture that birthed it. And I, right. I think for me, when I'm looking at any kind of magic or esoteric thought, I'm I'm trying to find, I guess, the through lines between the various cultures in the sense of, well, rituals across various cultures, they do have a performative aspect. Yeah. There is often an inward journey, a sense of transforming the inner self as being the goal. and. Really, kind of trying to reduce these rituals and these magical rites away from the parts that we're all interested in. You know, the D and D part, summoning golems. Flood. Trust me, I want to be a wizard and not like transforming my inner self into a perfected adept. I want to go out and fling fireballs, but I'm not going to do that. Breathe lightning. <laughs> but the the point being is that once you kind of boil, take away that the extraordinary parts, and you boil these rituals down, not not even paying attention to what they're meant to do. Just what you are doing, you have a lot of uh, chanting, a lot of performance, those things to put you into the right mindscape where magic is real. And I'm not saying that in the sense of magic is real in an objective sense. It's real in a subjective sense. And I think that one of the big points of this book is if, if, if magic is subjectively real to you, it is real. There is there's no reason to say it's not because that inner landscape is just as real as the outer landscape. And you're going to see that idea come up again and again in esoteric traditions. I mean, going all the way back to Plato's
0: world of forms. Oh, right. No, yeah, no, that, that kind of mentality has been around forever. Yeah. And, and we're going to talk about it in a couple episodes. It's going to be a hell lot of fun. You, hell yeah.
2: First culture. Yeah.
0: All right. The so that was good. Talk about uh, the rabbi is exactly what I wanted. And I want to thank you both for that. Hey. I'm going to try to disappoint you on the next question.
1: Good. I won't.
0: It's this is an easy one. So if you do disappoint me, um, you might be fired. So let's start with Jay. Oh no. <laughs> no, really, I don't care. But anyway, um, this really this is just an easy question because a lot of this book, uh, he, um like talks about in the early in the earlier chapters, he like hints at his use of go, going to use a spirit box. And then the final chapter is dedicated to his creation of and then use of a spirit box. And that's always been something that I've been super fascinated with, as you guys know. But um Mike, and I wrote this question before earlier today, so you'll find out how funny that is. But uh if we could get our hands on one, would you guys use it? So, let me rephrase. When it comes in the mail in 3 days. <laughs> yes,
2: I will use the spirit box.
1: I mean, I, I will use it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've wanted to use one for a long time. I think they're they're a neat idea. Um and I I do see it as a valuable tool for entering into that liminal state because I mean, so one thing that he talked about in this book, which I I, because we're on the topic of spirit boxes, I'm going to bring this up. I love the idea that of how ghosts communicate, as was suggested by some of the people Bieber, I'll talk to, which is specifically why the spirit box would work is because a ghost or a spirit or an entity or one of John Keel's non people, whatever you want to call them. They don't you know, they're without body. They don't have vocal cords, so they need kind of a mess of electromagnetic energy. pieces that they can put together into words, which is what the spirit box does. It cycles very quickly through radio stations, and you might pick up occasional bits of words here and there, and the whole idea is these entities on the other side can take these bits of noise and static and put them together into communications. Um, and I can can say, after reading this book, I did spend about three hours watching spirit box sessions on YouTube, and I, I yeah, I'll use it. I'm excited to use it. I will say I think that it, it like many modern ghost hunting tools, there is a huge risk that I'm always trying to be cognizant of, of projecting what we wanted to hear onto the spirit box. And what I mean by that is, if I'm in a graveyard at night and, you know, I hear the word dead once, I think I saw a ghost. I think I talked to a ghost, you know, like it.
0: Yeah, yeah. you can't help yourself yeah. with that kind of stuff. But I think that the, I think there is um, I think it's hard, you know, no matter what you're going to, you have to try and read through, you know, dig through your own bullshit, Mm -hmm. you know, because I've, you know, in my life, I've experienced some things that I can't really explain, you know, not with a logical sense. And I have a very logical mind. It's very, it's very hard for, or that's very hard for me, but that's what makes something like the spirit box and EM, like uh, the EMF readers so interesting to me is because this is something physical. It is something that makes sense to me. I know what it's doing. I know how it's doing it, you know, and the science behind it. And that explanation you just gave actually makes sense when you dig, when you, when you lay it, you know, dig down the fact that most of what we know of how other entities communicate or we register with them is through some kind of electromagnetic field or force or something and that's what all these technologies and radio waves are using well and you know it's
1: kind of it's an interesting point on that i mean i think you're just reinforcing one of Biebergal's points is that the idea of talking to ghosts is something ephemeral it's something that's be innately beyond us it but you have that tool you have that object that allows you to enter the realm of you maybe can and i think that's Regardless of what the technology does, if it lets you do that, it is has achieved uh, theoretically the the goal we're looking for here. It has negotiated that boundary within yourself that prevented you from accepting this as a possibility.
2: I I view spirit boxes in the exact same way that I view my tarot card decks and the other ways that I scry uh, that I that I scry or divine. Of it's like this could just be an ink blot test and that's fine like if this if this helps me extract from my subconscious information i already know maybe it doesn't necessarily have to come from somewhere it is coming from somewhere at the very least it's coming from me and if i draw comfort and value and guidance from that it, it, why does it have to be anything more
0: yeah, that's true. That's a good point.
1: Well, and so there's a quote from him in the introduction, which reads, technology gives us a sense of control, a means by which human beings through their own resourcefulness could exert influence over the mundane and the in- and the ineffable. And I think that I mean, really, I think that's as close to a thesis as we're getting here. I mean, I know that obviously it's it's not. But what I mean is uh, those technology like the spirit box, going back to that example, Again, it is a means by which you can exert some control over the unknown because you said there are these things that you've encountered you can't explain. You have a very logical mind, Rory. Um, And I almost think in a way that the spirit box and things like that help to contextualize the ineffable and in doing so let you almost put it in a box in your head. Because it's it's no longer this is a mysterious thing that happened. It's, well, this mysterious thing happened. I got out my spirit box and confirmed it was the, de- it was the dead spirit of a Civil War soldier. Regardless of whether that's true or not, the games, the non-people are not, Paradolia par- or not, that's really irrelevant. What matters is it, it, it assisted in your ability to interface with the fundamentally uh, unobtainable.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And that actually kind of leads into one of my uh one of my next questions ironically. I helped. Uh, so, do you believe like ultimately, let's just say like ultimately right now where you stand, do you believe that technology as it is is more of a is more of a tool to be used to enhance our experience or do you think that technology is like the end all be all of how we're going to be able to continue to go beyond like mediums like base mediums and things like that or is this all just a game and it's just hogwash to distract our feeble brain I mean I really hope it's not that last one
2: <laughs> I don't think I don't I don't think I don't think it's hogwash I think there is definitely... I will admit that for the <laughs> For those of you who have been listening to the other episodes, you you might remember my somewhat complicated upbringing of my family. My extended family was culturally Catholic, but most of, both of my parents had rejected religion and raised me and my sister as militant atheists. Uh, this book brought up a lot of... A lot of memories and patterns of thinking from my childhood. Uh, This book was begging me to dismiss it in the way that my father taught me to dismiss things like this. And I... I don't think it's all hogwash. I think that there is some sort of, to use Mr. Keel's favorite phrase, I believe there is a deeper phenomenon here. And again, I don't know if it is some sort of universal unconscious that has been uncategorized by human neurologists at this point, a sort of weird brain space that we all share. I I don't know if it's the devil. I don't know if it's ultra terrestrials, but... I think I think there is something there. I don't think it's hogwash. And I think that it's probably a combination of the first two. Of I think that technology for some people is an incredible tool to enhance their experience. I think for some people it would make their experience worse or lessen it. Like I think some people need to connect with whatever's happening completely naturally. Um as for is technology going to be how we finally quote unquote prove that whatever whatever the phenomenon is whatever is happening is technology going to be how we prove it i i have to say probably yes just because we've reached a state of humanity where people need to see it on a on a printout from a computer they need to have fucking satellite images confirming what they're being told or like like we we talked about this a little bit when we were still reading mothman prophecies of this growing culture of assuming people are lying when they say something that we don't know how to deal with (laughs) So I think I think if we ever prove that ghosts or demons or aliens or EVPs or whatever, if it's ever proved, it's going to have to be through technology. Otherwise, people will say that's bullshit because they don't want to deal with it because we as a culture have lost the tools that allow us to deal with
0: it. OK, yeah, no, I like that. I, I like that. So.
1: I, one thing you said I do agree with uh, Jay specifically in that it only one thing. Well I, I, I'll get there.
0: <laughs> no go on go on.
1: is it will you know technology will be the boon for some people and the bane for others. And and yes. I think for me uh, there, uh for me I personally believe that any form of esoterica and magic likely should be read allegorically and I think more often than not it has to do with The inward transformation of the self, uh, the kind of the return of our consciousness towards maybe that original kind of Godhead. Yeah. Um, That said, I think that technology can be a very potent tool. I don't believe here's the thing. I would, of course, be thrilled and horrified if, like, tomorrow the scientists at CERN were like, hey, we caught a ghost. (laughs) We we got it in a magnetic prison. It's right over here. Look at it. Scratching at the walls. I would be thrilled and horrified. But.
2: I'd be like, let I, it out. What are you doing? Is this what you've been doing this entire time?
1: <laughs> and well, I do believe that there, there are elements of the esoteric or the larger world that we're go- of that other world that we can figure out scientifically. There's a part of me that insists that we really can't because we're trying to apply a scientific categorization to something that is innately innately defies description, defies any shape you want to put it in. Uh, I think that probably if there's a way to explain this, it's through the science of consciousness. It's the idea that the world is a illusion that our brains are actively creating and that the the true esoteric path, I guess, is learning to control what your brain is filtering out. Um, but that's it. Even in the book, he has a quote here. Uh, and it's it's so this is when he's talking about the dream machine uh, in chapter six. And what that was is this kind of big tube. That would be descended over a, a light bulb and the tube had a bunch of holes poked in it and then the whole th- device was set on top of a, a record player. And so as the tube spun, you know, the light show would have if lights would pour out of the holes and it would make kind of a dizzying array of light to help in meditative practices.
2: Kind of like a laser show for a rock concert.
1: Yeah. And it was supposed to kind of help trigger that liminal state uh, where – esoteric thought could happen where the occult imagination exists and the quote goes to make the point mitch wants us to learn from his brain machine at some point we must let go of technology to really get to our full human potential the technology is the vehicle not the destination and i think i agree with that i think yes i think that these tools these items any kind of i mean and i'm not even talking about modern technology any sort of Religious symbol or object, uh, an animate object that we are using in these ceremonial or magical or religious rites. At the end, they are symbols for what we're trying to perceive, what we're trying to interact with. I hold a cross in my hand. I'm a priest. I'm not. uh, Don't believe me, but I have. If I'm a priest, I have a cross in my hand. That's not just an object. I am holding on to a representation of my God, and then through that, a representation of my faith. Right. Um
2: it's, It it just it also just reminds me of like of like, you know, the fact that one of the tools I use when I am having an anxiety attack is a cotton ball soaked in lavender and that I've taught myself to associate that with a state of calm and safety. And it's like the lavender does not actually offer sanctuary. The lavender returns me to a mental state that I inhabited when I had found sanctuary.
1: Exactly. It's it's all about what are the what do you need? to get there? What do you need to enter the realm where you're going to be able to accept things that your brain fundamentally is not wired to accept?
0: Yeah. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, I I agree with both of you there. I think technology is both is going to be is more of a tool like uh, the quote kind that you read explains it honestly the best. Uh, It's like it's the vehicle, whatever. Why do you think I take notes, Rory? Well, I think you take notes because you're a nerd. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And for the record, I take notes, too. Just I'm not a quote person like you. Words matter. Yeah, they do. But you don't have to be like, well, this person said. How else am I supposed to throw the shitty things people say back in their face if I don't write it down? Uh, That's a fair point.
2: Be nice to the bear. He's trying very hard for our podcast.
0: I know. I'm so proud of him. I'm so happy. <laughs> He's
2: a good bear with a strong work ethic.
0: <laughs> Any, anyway, uh my point uh. is uh like I I believe that with technology we will be able to get more of the answers, but ultimately I don't think that we're going to get everything that we want out of it, especially because at uh, at the end of the day, what we're asking for people to do, or what we're ultimately trying to prove, is something that is beyond our physical, uh, our literal physical understanding. Uh, and uh, one thing that has still to this day has blown my mind about this is the fact that the Earth itself, and down to ourselves, all have distinct sounds, and that that alone, fucking like, threw me into a spiral of the world. Every cell in your body right and now is screaming at a frequency. Exactly. You can't hear. And the Earth itself yeah. is, Saturn is, Pluto is, everything has its own frequency and we can detect it. And in my opinion, if we can detect it, therefore we can figure out one day how to manipulate it. So I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if, if we can harness the, the sound that our cells are making at a, at a, you know, at whatever this microscopic level is, and we can learn how to use that to adjust the cells. Now, you know, next thing that we're doing, we're healing ourselves.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean that's a cool idea. I think I think probably we're looking at this a different way. Like, if we're saying, yeah, I'm going to manipulate the sounds of my cells somehow to heal myself, that, that to me is in a completely different bucket from talking oh, to spirits and communing with oh, the yeah, inner no, self. No,
0: no, no, that's completely. Like, di- no, that's no, like science yeah. stuff. No, yeah, no. Yeah.
1: Technology does amazing things. We love technology. I'm addicted yeah. to the internet, just no, like no, everyone I'm a, else. No, uh, I'm,
0: I, I've got fucking more technology than you two combined sitting in front of I me. I right might now. be
2: able to bridge your guys's points. Did you brag now? about it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Um, one of one of the most convincing arguments that i have heard for the existence of life after death is the very simple conservation of energy energy cannot be destroyed just like matter cannot truly be destroyed it can only be shifted from one from one state and sort of one task and one state of being to the next we have energy inside of us we have energy that is the sound of our cells we have energy that is the le- the electrical impulses going through our brain because that's what seizures that's what seizures are listeners if you didn't know is the electricity that is in your brain creating thoughts going a little haywire and suddenly you have too much electricity in your brain and so basically, what I'm trying to say is to to bridge those two points is we may be able to someday reach a point where we can, just like we can measure, now the the sounds of our cells and the sounds that the vacuums of space make maybe someday we'll build something that can detect that energy imprint left by a dead person and th- if that's all that ghosts are, that makes perfect fucking sense is it's just the it's just the afterburn it is the after image of electricity and that mysterious energy departing the body. For the last time, and taking a different non-physical form in a different wavelength of of existence, and maybe someday we'll build a radio or a pair of X-ray specs or something that lets us see that.
0: Well, it's just like it's like Twilight and the Shadow and whatever you know, the underworld and whatever, and all the role-playing games and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, no. So one thing I will say about that, Corey, is I certain I don't know. There's a part of me that I don't. I don't believe that ghosts are just the, the imprint of that electrical discharge. That said, I think it is ludicrous uh, how stigmatized that topic is scientific in the scientific community in the sense that no one's even trying to find out. Yeah. And I really it's irritating. Yeah, like really. Here's the thing is I don't care what someone said to you. If for you know, if we have eyewitness accounts going back literally as long as we've been a species. Yep. Isn't that,
0: even if it, you'd think it's hokum, isn't that even at least wor- worth looking at a little bit? You motherfuckers believe that an angel came down and impregnated a lady and gave birth to a messiah.
2: No, no, no. No, no, no. The angel didn't impregnate Mary. That was God with his magic thoughts that made that baby and that lady. The angel was just the pregnancy test.
0: But they, the, but my Thank point is you. they accept that. My my point is that they accept that without question. But well, not not everyone does, but yeah. If we look at okay, if we look at the you know the favored religion of the world, is it yes, the majority of the world?
2: It is it, Christianity is still the most common religion in the entire world.
1: I mean, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Followed but by I, Islam, I think,
2: and then it's Hinduism.
1: I I think my point is though is regardless of, I don't know, for me, I guess this is maybe a little bit too idealized. My idea of what science should be trying to do is, I mean, yes, even if there are some explanations for some hauntings, for example, like we say, well, we know that there's a lot of carbon monoxide in haunted houses, but. That to me, a lot there's too, there's too big of an impulse to say, well, that's it, case closed. We know ghosts aren't real; it's carbon dioxide. When you think, okay, what about the sightings in drafty old castles that don't have haven't had any natural gas lines? What about the sightings going back to ancient times? What about the sightings in abandoned places where there's no there's never been running power? Like there is really, once you start looking at the breadth of how often paranormal events seem to occur, assuming that you're believing most of what people tell you because again these are subjective experiences uh a lot of the easy quick answer scientific kind of the skeptic debunking it it falls away and i think that that it's really important that with any of these topics be it aliens ghosts psychics if you're gonna if we're gonna look at it scientifically we need to look at the whole picture and not just what portion of it is going to be most easily explainable and let us get done with this as fast as possible? And I think it's what it is. Yeah, is no, they look for the it,
0: first answer and they're like, fuck it,
1: we're out. Because there's a, I think there's a lot of academic fear around it. I mean, I, I worked in a university setting and while I was not in any kind of science department, I was teaching in the English department. I There is. I did experience academic elitism. And what I mean by that is there is this kind of accepted body of topics that you're supposed to be looking at. And really a lot of times when you go outside of it, that's when you're saying, well, maybe you're you have a maybe your office is in the basement. Maybe you're not really well respected. Well, and you
0: experience that a little bit being a horror writer too, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I do. I mean, because
1: horror, uh, we're just kind of a little Glimpse into the publishing industry. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who's an editor for a pretty big magazine or pretty cool magazine, I think. Uh, it's called Friction. Um, it is a cool magazine. It's very cool. And what she was telling me was that the re- reason that horror, a lot of agents don't want to look at it, a lot of uh, publishers won't look at it. And the reason is the weirdest fucking thing. It's because bookstores don't know what shelf to put it on.
0: Oh my that's God. That's it.
1: Because most bookstores don't carry a horror department on their own. Barnes and Noble's got one now, which is great. Uh, but most bookstores is like, I have fantasy. I have sci-fi. Which is it? Well, it's horror. Fantasy or sci-fi. So,
2: and that's actually, that's intru- that's related to a point that I wanted to bring up. And since the age of enlightenment, there has been an increasing push To completely separate the notions of magic and science or now in the modern day, the science and the paranormal to the point where it has even started to bleed over into our fiction. Uh, Horror is a is the primary casualty of that split the other casualty is science fantasy which is the genre i'm currently trying to write in and everything that i look into says well that genre doesn't really exist anymore and i'm like what do you mean and they're like you see it occasionally in video games like borderlands and a couple of and like sometimes in comic books but science fantasy is largely dead it's either
0: if it's not uh steampunk or something that hyper specific fuck off. Yep.
2: And um that's even like towards the end of the book uh Beebergol started talking about Jack Kirby's stories that involve like the Eternals and the new gods and the his reimagined Asgardians and that got me thinking about uh on top of being a theologian and an author and a bit of an amateur comic book historian that is something that has been seen throughout the history of comic books actually is the desire to wrench apart science and fantasy elements and try to separate each hero into a very particular category of are they are they powered by science or are they powered by magic because like wonder woman's society the amazons in in Marston's, William in like William Malton Marston. I can't remember his name. I'm so sorry. I uh, I have committed sacrilege. I cannot remember the name of the great creator. Anyway, um, his original vision of the Amazons was, yes, they are ancient Grecian warrior demigoddesses who are also technologically advanced. They are more technologically advanced than the patriarchs world. And they would have... Flying machines and spaceships and m- healing rays that were like, no, this is this is a laser. We're performing advanced laser surgery. And then, like around like the the nineties, the early aughts, DC went, ah, uh, mm, no, 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 no. You got everything sci-fi related to Wonder Woman. Get rid of it. Bury it. She is she is Grecian high fantasy, and they basically elements that were actually in the early Wonder Woman stories core to the identity of the Amazons were just completely wrenched free. Because again, we have reached a point in Western culture, in American culture in particular, where science and magic cannot mix. And there's even an anime that I really, that I really love from when I was a kid called Sayuki, where In that anime, the ultimate sin of the entire world is to fuse magic and technology, and the catalyst that starts ending the world in that anime was one of the characters allowed his scientists to start fucking with magic and start supplementing their technology with magic. Humans just have reached a point where we're like, these are different things and they shouldn't touch, which compared to the other tens of thousands of years of our history is incredibly bizarre.
0: Right. Because like, yeah, the con- like alchemists, and I mean, they were the scientists of their time and what they thought they were doing was effectively magic.
2: A- yeah. And alchemy is a science. By every definition, alchemy is a science, not a magical practice. Uh,
1: well, and kind of an interesting thing about that. I mean, there, some early philosophers even saw themselves as uh almost spiritual scientists in that, you know, they they were uncovering the truths about our inner realm, about our inner consciousness and where that leads. Um, uh, so it's interesting. It, 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 and here's the thing, is that whole split of science and fantasy, I really do think a big part of it comes back to ridicule. No one wants to be wrong and no one wants to be the one who put themselves on on a limb for something no one can see. If I say, all right, every day a fire tornado rampages through this valley, I can go and look at it and I can figure out what it is and no one's going to discredit me for saying there's a fire tornado because it's right there. But when you're talking about the ghost of old Bob who lives in my basement Who's going to maybe show up, maybe not. Maybe depends on how much you believe in it. Maybe if I bring scientists down there, he won't show up because their disbelief will prevent him from being able to complete the circuit. So he'll never show up. And once you get into that kind of woo woo the stuff, the, the fear of ridicule is so great and the fear of being wrong is so great that they just disregard things when I think there are some really – important critical questions that we need to be asking here. because even if you say i'm a scientist i don't believe ghosts are real if you have again millennia of sightings if you have all these people coming out of the woodwork and saying this is something i saw and experienced at the very least it should you should you know tickle your curiosity and say maybe not well maybe there's no ghost there but why is this a part of who we are why is this something humans have always done we've always Seen the dead talked with the dead tried to commune with them and I think like I said I think once you close yourself off to those doors you even close yourself off to some very rewarding lines of questioning that could lead to some very interesting scientific discoveries about the nature of our brains and the world and consciousness. I've just gone off on no, I no, I I agree.
0: I agree with you though, because uh, ultimately, what you're saying, what it seems like you're saying, is um, we shouldn't be afraid of the criticism that comes with potentially being wrong. Failure is how we learn. We know that. So, I mean, in, in any science, you're going to fail a million times before you succeed and get what you want, right? We just need to be able to have the dedication, the support, and the framework to be able to actually do those things. The problem is, until we can legitimize things like this, we'll never get funding. You know, and without funding, you're never going to get anything from the government unless you get 22 billion or 22 million, you know, through ATIP. And that's fine. Well, you know, hey. <laughs> you just fuck all that straight to the straight into the wind. That's cool.
1: Oh yeah, no, the Almighty Dollar, and I. Oh, I mean, which I I do think we with not a political podcast. I have certain views uh, regarding how much I I detest how monetized our society has become, and well, and I I feel like that is also another element that gets in the way of our own kind of spiritual development as a culture. Because I mean, I'm not I'm not going to be treading on you know unwalked ground here to say that there is a. Problem that has been ar- arising, especially in, you look at the last 50, 60, 70 years, maybe up to a century, specifically in Western culture since the Industrial Revolution, of that stigmatization of these this element of our lives that had been part of the human experience for you know, 20,000 20, years at the very least. And to think that we're so arrogant as to say there is no intrinsic value there and it just can be disregarded. To me, that's just insane at best, short sighted at worst, I guess, or short sighted at best, yeah. insane at worst.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I absolutely agree. Especially when those same, when we, de- when we debunk or say that things like this are meaningless and what they, you know, they, they have no value to add to our lives anymore. And yet we still abide by laws or, um, you know, styles of, living that were created 200 plus years ago and we still say that that's fine well and also quite frankly uh we already
1: as a society pay an awful lot of attention to systems that are we know are imaginary like the dollar is not backed by anything anymore it's but and even if it was what is that backed by it's backed by gold and why, why is gold important don't know we just decided it was exactly it does. It, it's not like you can eat it it's not like it's a wonderful building material actually it kind of sucks as a building diamonds material. diamonds aren't gold even sucks. rare right diamonds yeah. aren't rare so it Really, if you look at it, almost all of our culture at the end is built on this this loose shifting ground, but we have the audacity to say that's rock solid, that's rock solid, but these things over here that I don't like or I don't understand or are difficult to understand i i they're they're not real, so we don't have to worry about that and I think it is at best intellectual cowardism um. I think that I think that if you any if you're a real scientist, you should be asking these questions. and You should be looking for an answer, even if you never find one or even if the answer you find disappoints you or contradicts you. That should be something that excites us as a people. It should never be something that we're shutting down, uh, which but granted, as we know, we as a species are really good about finding the people who are saying something that's different and then lighting them on fire. Uh
2: Tune in two episodes from now for the uh, Secret Teachers of the Western World, which is mostly heretic burning.
0: Actually, I actually think that's three episodes.
1: No, it's-, no, that's it's two. Yeah, two it's two. It's going to be episodes. episode, that's going to be episode five. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. All right. So I think, is that, did, I, did we answer your question? Very
0: much so. Yeah. and And um, ultimately, ultimately, I think you satisfied all my questions.
2: Hooray.
0: I think I think I think that's I think that's pretty good. I think I think I'm satisfied. Nicholas. Okay. Okay,
1: so final words on Strange Frequencies.
0: I mean, for me, my final words are all, it was a, it was a good it was a good read uh in its own way. Peter uh Bieber-Gall is a hell of a researcher and filled my brain with with lots of knowledge that I will cherish until it's gone. Uh and uh ultimately it persuaded me to purchase a spirit box.
1: Yeah? Although I think he would have wanted you to build one.
0: Yeah, I'm not an engineer. I think yeah.
2: I I am I am fascinated by his journey into into ectoplasm. Um I didn't know a lot about I obviously I knew about séances and Victorian spiritualism. I did not under I did not know about the underground performance art slash competitive sport of who can who can produce the most ectoplasm and from what orifice and uh it was it was gross and i kind of loved being revolted by it and um i i loved the first three chapters if just for I love this little this little fucking nerd named Peter B. Bergall just being like, I will build a golem. And it's like, what are you going to do with it? And he's like, don't worry about it. Just build me the goddamn golem. And it's like, I don't think you're going to use this power for good, Peter B. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: so yeah, Peter B, I like that. Um. I think for me I I enjoyed the book. I I will say he is a compelling writer. Uh he's he he made did a very good job of making me kind of feel his humanity come through these experiences. It very it didn't read like a academic book. It read like one man's weird cross-country road trip. Uh but it, and it was it was it was good. It was compelling and I did learn a lot. Um I will say though this book gets a gold star because not just because it got me thinking about some stuff I've never thought of before the whole idea of the occult imagination is an interesting concept and that whole idea of magic as a performance um the kind of the performative nature of magic I hadn't considered that and that kicked me down a whole rabbit hole uh but I I do have to comment before we end on the Silver Swan Oh yeah that's right Tell me so, so basically the Silver Swan was one of the automatons they talk about in this book um And what it – I mean when we're saying automaton, one thing I want to make clear, and this is something I didn't even know. We're we're talking not just about, you know, the rat at Chuck E. Cheese. We're talking about these clockwork mechanical creatures that we have been making all the way back to antiquity. There are stories in here about, you know, Greek aristocracy who had these in their garden. They had mechanical gardens of these devices that would get wound up and then they would move to mimic life. That
2: was what initially made me think of the Egyptian statues being dressed and bathed in their
1: temples. Exactly. So, but anyway, my thought was this silver swan, what it is, is it is a beautiful clockwork swan. And I look it up. It's a, it's amazing to watch this thing move and it has kind of a fake water effect underneath it. And this swan, while it's wound up, will kind of move its head from side to side until it spots a little mechanical fish in the water. And then it will dart its head down and grab it. And it's amazing to watch because it looks so lifelike, but. So I was watching this YouTube video in bed. Um, you know, my fiance passed out next to me. And I was sitting there staring at the ceiling and full disclosure, I uh I was not sober. Um, I'd been yeah, I'd been hitting the bong pretty hard that night. And I was staring at the ceiling and I just had this 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 kind of door open in my mind. And that any book that gets a gold star. It's a one that I had An existential crisis at 3 (laughs) (laughs) a.m. And and it was about the silver swan. And it was because of this whole idea of the science of consciousness, which I'm sure are any of our listeners who are in this into this kind of stuff. You've heard of it before. This idea that consciousness is a pervasive field that permeates all reality and that means that everything, every. Even every inanimate object contains consciousness and experiences consciousness, but they experience it far differently than we we do. Like it could be your bottle of Windex has consciousness, but it will never have a cogent thought. It's just a vessel that is constructed from because they're they're talking about
0: consciousness as like an energy, yeah, not you know
1: as the. But the whole idea, one of the ideas though, that gets postulated is that where complex thought comes from is consciousness in any sufficiently complicated system. And what I find interesting about these automatons is they're down, you know, they thousands of little steel feathers, thousands of little gears, this incredibly complex mechanism that is mimicking life. My thought was, what would that machine mean in the world of consciousness? It would be As close to us actually creating life, we're creating a complex system, which is, you know, doing something. But who's to say it's not thinking? Because if consciousness is pervasive, everything is a construct of consciousness and any sufficiently uh, complex system will allow for thought. At what point could we make something
0: that thinks? No, I mean, Uh, that's that's. (laughs) I think that's exactly what Peter wanted.
1: Now, that said. Uh, I, I do think that if we were to make something that really thought if that if let's say that's true and consciousness really does work like that, I would think we'd probably need to make something that has a number of gears equal to, say, the cells in the body.
0: Yeah, you'd have to it do has something to be that complex. That's uh, like how we can't explain theory, like outside of evolution, why we work, you know? you know, well, like there's some I
1: mean, people don't really appreciate how
0: complicated
1: our bodies are oh, and yeah. how much like watch work they are like so much that happens in your body only happens to aid other systems in your body and you know even down to the cellular level we have these different orders of of jobs of duties different cells that do different things we are each a walking universe of
0: of Living things. Actually, an interesting thought on that that, uh, Jay and I were literally just talking about while I was having a mental breakdown because of my surgery. Yeah. Um, is my organs themselves don't understand surgery. You know, they don't understand what, what is happening. So while I do, I have to calm myself down, my whole body down so that my stomach can stop going, Ah, all, all day long and that actually sent me down like a mini spiral of like that whole same thing like if every everything even itself even arguably our stomachs have their own consciousness you know you could take it that deep yeah you could
1: I mean, I think I will say I think that's the door to insanity. I I feel the
2: need to point out that we know for a fact that there are places in our body besides our brain that produce cells that are indistinguishable from brain cells, and those cells do transmit a... A primeval protocologic like like a proto-thought form. Like those cells don't transmit thoughts, but they kind of think to the point where um if you like they, they show up in the gut, actually, and in like throughout the digestive tract, to the point where if someone receives a transplant of a section of small intestine from another person they begin to develop personality traits of the donor this interesting. is interesting this is an observable phenomenon and you you ask transplant surgeons about it and they just they just kind of shrug they're like no it's one of those things where it's like yeah we all know that happens but we don't really know we don't entirely know why and it's i read about this one fascinating case where after receiving a and it wasn't a gut it was um i think it was a heart or a lung a guy received a transplant and suddenly the type of woman that the man who received the the organ from completely changed. Like he used to, he, he, his. Like who
0: he was attracted to? Yeah. yeah. Like he oh, started
2: wow. to become, he was like, I was exclusively for a long time attracted to short, petite, blonde women. And it was like he woke up from surgery with that and he finally did some digging and someone told him, the man who gave you your heart, his fiance was matched that description to a T. Oh
0: huh interesting yep okay
1: well i think that was a good discussion
0: yeah uh, so we're we ready to go to some housekeeping yeah let's move on to the housekeeping items
1: okay so that ends the our third episode on strange frequencies by peter biebergall uh we have some really cool books coming up and i am so excited about the next episode <laughs> yeah. uh it is coming out one week from today uh, it's going to be coming out on July 28th. We are tackling the new book from Jacques Vallée and Paola Harris, Trinity, The Best Kept Secret. And I got to say, having read the whole book twice now. um I, I, it is thrilling. It is great. I really encourage all of our listeners out there. Go out, buy the book, read it, so you can listen along with us. So you can be involved in this. Uh, and as going forward, as we're talking about these books that are coming up, please email us your thoughts. Email us your
0: questions. Email us things that you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. We want to introduce, or uh, we introduce. We want you guys to like have your questions get talked about here. I won't say answered, because God knows we leave with more questions than we answer ourselves. Yeah, but you can email us. Uh, oh, we have an email. It's uh, podcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at pod. Yep, and I'm on Twitter as well at MixRoryWicks. Um, I'm at bearish terror.
2: I'm at Midwest Undead.
0: <laughs> so I think that's it. I will
1: see you all. Or we will see you all next week. Uh, until then, I think that's
0: it. Yeah, stay safe out there, people.
2: Don't get lost.
0: I'm going to do both of those things. God
2: God damn it, Nick.
0: I am the golem.